You can turn your Bible to Mark chapter 6. We'll be in that chapter today. We're actually, this is one complete story. So we're going to try to kind of cover about a quarter to a half of it today. And we're going to look at this idea of what are the works that God requires. Because Jesus is going to answer this question in this text. The question on the table is, what does God require of me? And Jesus is going to lay, 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 lay it down here. Uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in over your head? Out of your depth? I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, a family that I stayed with in Great Britain uh, many years ago, uh, they had a son, his name was Nigel, he had severe MS, and he and I just hit it off right away. And man, we would stay up and talk about Jesus all night, it was just great. And his dad's name was Robert, mom's name was Christine, dad's name was Robert. And they were, that week that I started staying with them, they were going on holiday. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that means vacation. And that's what they call vacation. They call it holiday. So uh, they were going on holiday, and they were taking me along with them. And it was up toward the north coast of England. And his dad had been working all year. Robert had been working all year on this boat that he had been reconditioning and refitting, getting it ready for holiday. And he was so proud of it. He took me out to their little parking uh, overhang there, their little parking garage, and he took the tarp, top, tarp off of it, and he showed me everything about it, everything that he had done, and it was seaworthy. It was ready. And I was excited to go out on the boat with them. And so we went over to the coast, and I knew something. I started to know something was up when he sort of pulled out on the beach and backed it up on the beach and right down into the water, into the surf, I thought, huh, that's different. And then, so we unhooked it and got his son up, strapped into a seat, kind of duct taped him into a seat so he wouldn't move. And then we sort of began to push. He said, help me, Jeff. And I said, okay. So we began to push this boat into the water. And in an hour and a half later, we, we got it into the water. Because the surf just kept pounding it, and I don't even know. To, I, I just remember being so exhausted. And we climbed up into this thing, and I sat down, and I thought, huh, that's different. And then we got out into the channel there, and, and after a while, he sort of cast his line, and he's got his fishing hook in the water. And then I look down, and I see he doesn't have any bait on his hook. And I said, Robert, uh, you forgot to bait your hook. He said, what does that mean? I said, what do you mean, what does that mean? Have you ever been fishing before? He goes, well, no. I said, well, here, reel that back in. I was a country boy from Virginia, so I could help him a little. He had a little can of sardines there, so we just kind of stuck a sardine on the, on the thing and threw it back out there. He was never going to catch anything like that. And uh, so I kind of sat there, but then I noticed there was about a half an inch of seawater in the bottom where our feet were on the floor. And so I was just kind of tapping on it, and then I realized, wait a minute, I'm tapping on seawater. And I go, hey, Robert, uh, do you have a pump? And he goes, no. <laughs> I go, oh, okay. And then uh, about a half an hour later, that water started rising in that boat, and I thought we were kind of sinking. And I said, hey, Robert, can I ask you a question? He goes, well, sure. <laughs> and I said, man, have you ever been on a boat before? He goes, and the blood drained out of his face. And he looked down at the water, and he goes, well, no, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> 
And I said, man, get out of the way. And I sat down and took that wheel and I drove that boat all the way in. And the only thing I could see in my mind is that scene in Jaws where like they're driving it into shore and the Jaws comes up and crashes their boat. So I'm driving that thing, pushing it all the way. And I don't even know how we got that thing back onto shore, but I turned it around. We backed it up and we finally got it onto his trailer. And then he sat his son, he picked his son up and sat him on the side of the boat and I went to stabilize him, and about that time, a wave hit the front of it, and Nigel, is, he's just dead weight. He can't hold himself up or anything. He falls back on me. We both fall into the water backwards, and I got scared to death. I just thought, oh, man, this kid's going to drown. So I jumped up and grabbed him, and I just looked like a soldier on DD. I was just dragging him onto the beach, and I dragged him up there, and he was laying on his back, and I got down on my knees. I said, man, are you okay? Are you all right? And he goes, I am. <laughs> please, let's never do that again. <laughs> I go, man, we are never doing this again. And we got into their little, their little SUV thing that they had and went back to the vacation house. And I remember sitting there having a crystal clear thought. And that is, we should have never been out there. We were a bunch of non-aficionados. Have you ever been in over your head? Have you ever been out of your depth? It could have been anything. It could have been a hike or a hunt or a walk or a race or it could have been a swim but you got into something and you found yourself out of your depth. Now, both miracle stories that we're looking at today are two different groups of people who are out of their lane. They just do not have the resources to, to meet the need that is before them. And they are in over their head. So the main idea I want to bring to you today is this from this text. Here's where we're going. Here's where it's going to. The work that is required for salvation is trusting Christ alone. It's pretty simple. But that work is trusting Christ alone. Now, the two stories before us, both the feeding of the multitude and Jesus walking on the water, they are going to be used by John as illustrations of the fact that Jesus, only Jesus, there are needs that only he can meet. There are things that only he can do. There are necessities in your life that only Jesus is equipped to handle. And then when we get to the subject of salvation, Jesus is going to make that crystal clear to his audience. So the first story is the multiplication of the bread and fish. The people are experiencing what I would call a sanctified distraction. They have a holy obsession. Have you ever been so caught up in an activity that you forgot to eat or sleep I know kids playing video games, man. You go, I hear stuff down in the three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, do you know what time it is? They're like, no. I'm like, it's three in the morning and you're still playing. Go to bed. You know, so you get into an activity and your focus and your mental energy becomes so absorbed in that that you just kind of lose sense of time. And that's how the crowds are. That's how they have come to Jesus. Look in chapter six, verse two. It says, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And they wanted more. They wanted more. So it's official. Jesus has spread, his fame has spread as far as the Decapolis, which are the Greek cities to the east, right? Jews try to stay away from that place. But they are coming to hear Jesus too. And his fame has spread all the way to the western coast in places like Caesarea Philippi or all the way up to the coastal Levant. They are coming in droves and they are packing the hillsides to hear the miracle man from Nazareth and possibly even to touch him or get close to him. Jesus is famous. He has taken off into the stratosphere. 
And they are so enamored with his works and his teaching. Jesus must have taught for hours and hours and they hang on his every word and they are spellbound. And the next thing you know, they've blown by breakfast, lunch, dinner, and now they're kind of stuck out there in this remote place. And so the disciples... The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we have a problem. Everybody's getting hungry. Stomachs are starting to growl and we have no food to feed these people. And Jesus asked Philip a question that Jesus already knows the answer to. It's in verses five and six. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? (laughs) He asked this only to test him because he already knew, had in mind what he was going to do. So Jesus knows what he's going to do. This, listen, this is intentional. Sometimes Jesus intentionally will lead you into a spot, and it's a tough spot. And he got you there intentionally, and nobody thinks it's intentional, but he's going to meet the need. But I love Andrew's answer. Andrew actually goes and finds a little kid who just has a few pickled fish and a few barley loaves. And he finds that kid and brings the kid to Jesus. And in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, here is a boy. I found a boy. With, small, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go to feed so many? Now, his question is very interesting. His offering is very interesting because it shows that he doesn't quite have faith. He's not like the Roman centurion. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, speak the word and it shall be so. You know, like he doesn't have that sort of magisterial faith. He has hope. This is hope. Because he doesn't know what Jesus will do. He just knows what Jesus could do. And he brings what little bit he can find to Jesus and says, I've seen you do amazing things. So if anybody could multiply this, you definitely could. And sometimes when your faith feels deficient, your faith is broke as a joke. And you feel like you, can't, you don't even know if your faith is going to live another day. Sometimes you have to fall back on hope. The scripture says this, hold on to hope hold on to hope. And sometimes you just have to cling to hope. And so this is not going to satisfy the crowds, obviously. There's no reason to even bring this offering to Jesus. There's no reason to even bring it to Jesus unless he can do something about it. And so the principle from the story is is very simply this, that experiencing the occasional trying life event, the, the occasional trial in life isn't optional. It's not optional. You will. But our response is optional. And I think the response that Jesus expects is this right here. It's a declaration of our need and an acknowledgement of our lack. It's a declaration of the fact that we don't have the wherewithal. We don't have what it takes to meet this need. And look, Jesus will supply you with every good and perfect gift. He will meet your needs. But, the, but we have to come into the deal with the mindset that Jesus is the ultimate source of everything. He's the ultimate source of everything. And we acknowledge, acknowledge our scarcity and our lack. And God does provide the bread and the fish. He does it. And me, he does provide medicine and doctors, and I'm glad for it. And he does provide friends and pastors and neighbors. But there are needs of the heart that only Jesus can meet. There are places in your soul that only Jesus knows about and can reach. And so we have to come to him and openly, honestly acknowledge our need before him. So Jesus feeds them all. So much, there's 12 baskets. I don't know how big these basketfuls are. I didn't look it up, I'm sorry. But there are 12 basketfuls left. That means people are stuffed. They go home fat and happy. 
The second story is walking on water. So now Jesus, we learn from the other gospels though, that Jesus is exhausted. He's exhausted because this is a very difficult emotional time in his life. He just lost a loved one. And so Jesus sends them away across the sea and he goes up and finds a a grassy hill to pray. And this is how I envision it. I think he went up there and I think he laid down on his back and closed his eyes and just began to commune with the father because he was so exhausted. And then he looks out over the sea and he sees about three miles into their journey, they're in trouble because now a furious squall has kicked up. And who's in the boat? Who's in the boat? Uh, Peter, James, Andrew, John, these are experienced seafarers. These people are experienced. They're not like my friend Robert in England. They've been in a boat before. They know how to handle these situations. And now this situation too is out of their control. Now Jesus comes out walking on the water to them. And it's clear, clear from all accounts of this story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's clear from all accounts that the disciples are scared to death of two things. The problem and the solution. And sometimes you and I can experience that as well. And sometimes, you know, no matter what the problem is, no matter what the predicament is that has come into your life, sometimes the solution seems almost scarier to have to go through. But Jesus is there. And he is on that water. And all they see is this ghostly man walking out, woo, you know, out, out to them, and they're terrified of him. Now, we know the rest of the story. John doesn't include these details, but Peter gets out of the boat. He says, Lord, if it's you, call me. Jesus does. He goes out on the water, and then his faith fails him, and Jesus has to rescue him and put him back in the boat, and then they go immediately to the shore. They drive immediately to the shore. And so they're afraid. And when they get back, here's what the scripture says. We pick it up in verse 24. It says, then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they're looking for him. They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, uh, where have you been? Where did you go? You know, when did you get here? Jesus cuts straight to the issue, straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered, amen, amen, I tell you. You are looking for me because you saw the signs I performed. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Stop there. Even the Pharisees sought signs. And Jesus says, you're not even seeking the signs. You just want the benefits of the kingdom. You just want your bellies full. And so he says to them, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Amen. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus said, it's an irony. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. To believe in the one whom God has sent. God's one and only Son God the Son. One, God knows you have finite needs and he desires to meet those needs. I think what I love about the story is Jesus Jesus knows a couple of things. First of all, he seems to know exactly what is gonna go down. He seems to have led people to this moment in plans of showing them, in planning on showing them the glory of God, right? 
demonstrated clearly. So he, he, it seems like he knows the condition of their heart. This entire miracle is going to reveal what the state of the art is in their soul. So he knows that, right? He also knows what the needs are. He knows what, he knows what they need. And he knows that many of them have false faith. And he still meets their needs anyway. Aren't you glad for common grace? Aren't you glad for an abundant world well stocked with the miraculous? where you and I can have access to all kinds of things that the Lord blesses our lives with. But these people are after the blessing of the Lord, not the Lord who blesses. And so Jesus has already clearly had compassion on the crowds. He has already fed their bellies and sent them home fat and happy. And Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he said in Matthew 6, 31. He says, do not worry. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? But the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. You see, the Christian life is not a denial of our needs. It's not a denial that we are in a deficit. It's not a denial that, that we're in a place where we don't want to be. It is an acknowledgement of it. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, a few verses down says this, Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think about that. Now Jesus sees these people, he knows the state of their hearts and he has compassion for them because they are without a king, a true king, a king of the heart. And so he has compassion on them. And if we learn anything from this story, we learn this, that at base, Jesus does minister to needs. He ministers to hungry crowds and disciples who are scared on the water, and people who come with empty hands. Hear me well, if you've come this morning with a heart that is aching or hurting, you've come carrying a burden you feel like is, is just too heavy for you to bear, Jesus had compassion on them, he has compassion on you. Number two, through our physical and temporary needs, God wants to draw attention to our deeper spiritual needs. So it just seems so, that the way Jesus works is he uses the necessities of life to draw our attention to those things which have eternal, eternal significance. Eternal significance. And he does so here as well. Notice the people come seeking Jesus, but Jesus lays bare the true motivation of the heart. Verse 27 says this, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice it's a gift. Notice that the work that God wants to do in them is a gift that the Son of Man wants to give. And how do you receive a gift? You don't earn it. You receive it with empty hands. And so they do not really want to know him. The fact of the matter is the crowds, they don't want to know Jesus. They want his stuff. They want what Jesus provides for them. But they don't want to glory and revel in the glory of the one and only and here's what Jesus said in the rest of that Matthew 6 verse. He said this, But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So that's an issue of priorities. What's our priority? Is it Jesus or is it what Jesus provides for us? Because he wants to provide for you, but he wants to be the white hot center of your desire. I, I had a rough week this last week. I'll tell you that. It was It was rough. And uh, there was one day when I was running errands, and as I was kind of scooching around town running errands, I just kind of had this overwhelming sense of sorrow that just landed on me. 
And I was like, oh man, I hate this when this <laughs> happens, you know. So just like always, I start to pray through it, but my prayer was really different than it has been normally, lately. My prayer is, God, am I doing something wrong here? Honestly, I, I am get up every single day and I am trying to walk with you as faithfully as I know how. And I just feel like there's something more you want from me. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, I realized how sinful it was. And I identified with the people in the story. And I was like, oh, I am the people in the crowd, you know. <laughs> I am those people. <sighs> and then just the answer came ringing back into my heart. I, I don't desire more from you. I desire more of you. You see, when God has more of your heart, when your appetite for God and his son has become enlarged, oh, oh, he'll, he'll get more from you. But you don't have to work on checking boxes to say, oh man, I just, need, I just need to do all of these things for the Lord and then the Lord will be pleased for me. No, you give him more of yourself. You give him more of who you are, the core of you. And, and the fruit will be produced from that. Often those physical and immediate necessities, they can arrest our attention. They can stop us cold and draw our attention to the true necessities of life. God says, Jeff, I want more of your heart. I want more of your affections. I want more of your passion. Number three, our greatest spiritual need then is peace. That was our Advent devotional today. Peace, a reconciled relationship with God the Father through belief in God the Son. And this is surely the most pressing, urgent need we have in the world. It's what our souls desire and need the most. So then the question comes, how does a person receive eternal life? How do they receive the eternal and the abundant life that is in Christ? And the first thing you need to know is it's not by works. Their question was very Jewish. This was very Jewish of them to ask the question, what are the legal requirements? What, is, what are the works that God wants us to do so that we, we can receive this gift, this eternal life? That was very Jewish of them, and it's very human of us as well. I had that experience, I just told you the other day, just asking God, what do you want me to do? And that's kind of a knee-jerk reaction of the human heart. And Jesus' response to that is, okay, I'll tell you what the works are. Here they are, believe. <laughs> trust. Put your trust and your belief and come to God with nothing to transact with but yourself. And he will take you as you are, and he will not allow you to stay that way. So what are some things? What are those things that we should do? And that is a question that comes on the lips of the rich young ruler. I think the rich young ruler in that story, he epitomizes this mindset. Remember that guy? Well, he comes to Jesus and he wants to know, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? And Jesus gives him a status quo theology answer that he would have gotten from every other run-of-the-mill rabbi. He says, just go obey the Torah. That's what you've been taught, right? And the man kicks back. He says, no, I've been doing that. I've checked every box since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I have obeyed every command that I can think of. Something is still not right. Something is still missing in my heart, and Jesus knows it. And Jesus knows what the answer is. He can look through the man like he is made of glass, and he sees the spiritual cancer that is killing him, and he says, okay, I'll tell you what your problem is, since you really want to know. You have a false god. 
your false God is all your stuff. All of your accoutrements, all the material blessings in the wealth. You love your blessings from God more than you love God. So get rid of all that and then come be my disciple. He doesn't say come do discipleship stuff. He, says, he doesn't say come do discipleship. He says come be a disciple of mine. Come be a follower. And you and I become followers of Jesus when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus. So what does faith entail? Well, it's not by works, so it is by faith. It is by faith. And we have to understand that faith involves some, some, uh, some different aspects. And the first one is this. Faith involves God pursuing us. Faith involves God pursuing us. A.W. Tozer famously say, stated, before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. Jesus will later, later say in chapter 6, verse 44, he will say, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Who is the father looking for? Who is he looking for? He told the Samaritan woman, the father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth, who will worship genuinely empowered by the spirit from the heart in the truth of God's word. God is seeking worshipers. Not people who just want the blessings of the kingdom. So faith first involves God in pursuit of a true worshiper. It also involves, faith involves God arresting us through conviction. You cannot come to Jesus. No one can come to Jesus unless they come to a moment of clear conviction for sin. Because his conviction for sin is the beginning of his antidote for a self-righteous life. And so we come to Jesus confessing what is true. What the crowd should have said to Jesus, what everyone in the crowd should have said to Jesus, you're right. You're absolutely right. I just came not even for the sign. I just came for the benefits of the sign. I just came to get my belly filled. That's what I'm looking for is all my needs met and I don't really care about you and I'm sorry. And that conviction should have led them to their knees in repentance. You see, godly conviction leads to repentance. Worldly conviction or guilt leads to destruction. But godly repentance leads to redemption. It's redemptive. And so we feel conviction and faith for our sin. And lastly, faith involves trusting reliance in Christ alone. So he said, here's the work. Put your faith in God's only son. Put your faith in God's only son. And that is an irony because that is no work at all. It's no work at all to re simply receive the gift that God brings us. And there are two components that are necessary for that kind of faith. The first one is genuine, sincere trust. And the, the second one is you have to have the right object. You have to have the right object. Now, you can have the right object and not have genuine, sincere faith. And you'll walk out the door not changed one iota. You see, Jesus, they had the Son of God right there in their midst. They had the Son of God right there. They had the right object, but they had faulty faith. But you can ha also have absolute stalwart faith, unshakable faith in the wrong object. And if you've got the wrong object, you're going to drop like an anvil. Uh, this was illustrated to me when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, I was crazy about Superman. 
Like of all the superheroes out there, man, Superman was my favorite. I had Superman everything. I had Superman lunchbox. I would draw pictures of Superman. I had like a little flip book I made of Superman flying around. I had Superman underoos. You guys remember that? Underoos? Yeah. I was one of those Gen Xers. Grew up with underoos. And uh, I, I loved Superman. And I would get, once in a while, my mom would get me one of those little vital, vinyl Superman suits, those little plastic ones from like Walmart or something. She would get them. Uh, back then it was like Murphy Mart. And she would bring them home and they would rip within two hours and be absolutely no good. So she decided for my, I think it was eighth or ninth birthday, I can't remember which one, she decided to make me a custom Superman outfit. And it was the last present she, she let me open. All my friends are there in the living room. I opened that box and pulled that thing out and was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe, and I remembered in the comic books, I have this comic book, that Clark Kent's mom made him a custom outfit as well. And then I put things together. <laughs> I realized I'm Superman. <laughs> and so I put that thing on right there in front of everyone in that party, and I would not take, my mom couldn't get me to take it off. And then uh, the next Monday came rolling around. So I had had it on for just about three days. And I woke up in the morning. I slept in it. And my mom came in and she said, Jeffrey, you can't wear that Superman suit to school. She said, now you take it off and you put your school clothes on. I said, yes, mama. She got in the car. She drove to work. The bus came. I was still in my Superman suit. <laughs> Except I had pulled all my clothes over top of it and tucked my cape down in my pants. Just like Superman, I was ready to roll. And then I got to school. I, oh man, I just fidgeted all day. I could not wait. I could not wait to get out on the playground. And, and so we lined up for recess, and my best friend, John Harvey, was in the front of the line. And I said, hey, Johnny. And he turned around, and I pulled my shirt back, and I showed him the corner of that S and that insignia. He's like, oh, man, you wore it. I was like, that's right. Any trouble on that playground today? <laughs> Superman will be there. And I couldn't wait for trouble to erupt. We, as soon as the bell rung, I, we all go running out for our places. And as I was running, I was stripping down. My little cape just flapping in the wind. And all the kids just started, all my friends just started running after me. We were pretending to fly for a while. And then I got the idea to go up on the tallest slide and just slide down. Like, you know, just kind of flying down. And they would follow me down, but that wasn't enough. I went up on the top of the slide, and as I stood there, everybody's like, Jeff, Jeff. And I breathed in the collective af <laughs> the affirmation of my peers, and I thought, I'm going to fly off the top of this thing. <laughs> and I launched in faith. <laughs> as the doctor was uh, setting the le my leg, um, <laughs> it occurred to me, I had an epiphany, and the epiphany was simply this, I'm not Superman. <laughs> Dumb kid, right? That's a stupid kid right there. That's, that's why you get five post-secondary degrees when you're that dumb, you need them. <laughs> and so, man, I mean to tell you, it was, it, I, it was actually a moment in which God taught me a principle about truth. I can believe with all my heart. And if I believe in something that's false, I'm going to drop like a rock. And the same is true spiritually, folks. We can believe with all of our hearts in the wrong Jesus and we will be lost forever. We will be lost forever. But the right Jesus is here. He's in this text and he's present today. 
And if you will sincerely, genuinely put your faith and put your trust and all your heart into him and him alone, you are doing the work God wants you to do, which is no work. You just receive his work. You receive what he has done by faith. Would you pray with me? God, we are just so desperate for you, and most of the time we don't even really know how much. Not even really aware how much we're desperate for you. But God, today, we want to acknowledge our lack, our scarcity, our inability to do anything about our predicament. And if you're here this morning and you just know that you're a sinner, and you're willing to confess it, and you're willing to say, I'm a sinner, I am far from God, and I am headed for an eternity without Jesus forever. And I know it. Would you just trust in the Lord right now? Trust in God's unique and one and only son from eternity. Trust in the son who is God the son. Put your faith in him. Because he's already died for your sins. And he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to triumph over sin and death and hell for you. Would you trust him? And if you're a believer and you're sitting here today and you just don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, you don't know who to turn to, and you're in a predicament and you find yourself in over your head, frankly, you're out of your depth and you need God to come through. I know I feel that way this morning. Will you just put your trust in Jesus? Will you ask him to meet your needs because he wants to? Will you seek the Lord of blessing and not the blessings of the Lord? Will you give yourself fully, fully devoted to him and him alone? God, we do that this morning right now. Lord, take our lives as an offering to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 